0: But we are pleased uh, to welcome this morning, maybe for the first time, at Pediatric Care Rounds, Dr. Eunice Chen uh, to the podium. Um, Dr. Chen is a native of Rhode Island, but completed undergraduate MD and PhD, MD-PhD training at Stanford University School of Medicine, along with her surgery internship and in otolaryngology head and neck surgery residency continuing in Stanford. <clears throat> Gone out to Seattle Children's Hospital for fellowship and somehow we were able to swing her back all the way home to New England from the West Coast in 2009 when she joined uh, us here at Chad and at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth where she has, um, uh, two years ago, been promoted to associate professor of surgery and pediatrics. She's held leadership roles uh, within the MD-PhD program at Geisel as well as um, now serving as the residency program director for otolaryngology, head and neck surgery here at DHMC for the past three years, in addition to um, really numerous national association roles at the American Academy of Otolaryngology and head and neck surgery with a strong uh, academic focus on um, oncogenesis, microparticles, and, and uh, vascularization, I think, of tumors. But today is going to update us, Thank, thankfully stepped in for our Grand Rounds Committee when we needed a, a December speaker, and it's always easier to get a local speaker, and we're really appreciative that Dr. Chen is going to update us on congenital CMV and hearing loss. So, Eunice, thanks. For you.
1: Thank you very much.
2: All right, thanks uh, again for the invite. Uh his a little, uh, about two months earlier than I had intended on it, but it's actually a great timing um, as um, um, we have, as an institution, tried to start in a, Uh, clinical study uh, dealing with uh, congenital CMV and hearing loss. And so, I was hoping to get uh, a few people, key people in the room at once to try to see whether or not we can kind of expedite this, uh, our institutional involvement in in congenital CMV and and hearing loss. So, um, I have no disclosures. Um, I do have a disclaimer uh, that I don't consider myself an expert on CMV. There's probably a lot more people here that know much more about CMV, but um, in putting together this, uh, this talk, I've definitely learned a lot. Um, and I'm also going on just a few hours of sleep because my son has been sick for the last two nights, so I might be a little bit fatigued so, um, and groggy. Um, so the objectives are uh, to review CMV uh, and uh, congenital CMV-related hearing loss, uh, to review the diagnostic and targeting screening for C- congenital CMV, try to understand the treatment, the managements of, the, uh, of this um, entity, and then um, uh, kind of learn a new diagnostic paradigm in terms of hearing loss and how to include congenital CMV testing within this uh, t- a paradigm for uh, diagnosing hearing loss. Um, so, the outline is I'm gonna introduce uh congenital CMV and do a pre-test to see how much everyone knows here um, and then we'll get into kind of the, the nuts and bolts in, the, in terms of the diagnostics and the screenings, treatments, managements, and, and then the, these new paradigms. And then we'll take a post-test to see how everyone has learned uh, and then some key points. Uh, so, um, as most of you may remember from our days in medical school. Uh, so, cytomegalovirus uh, is a human herpes virus family member. Um, it's a double stranded DNA enveloped virus, uh, and it's very common. So, when you look into the population, um, you know, over 50% of uh, adults will have CMV uh, and no, not even uh, ever know it. No, No problems, maybe had a a little bit of upper respiratory, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in young kids, it's also pretty prevalent. Um, As you start to pick it up, daycares and things like that, um, you start um, acquiring it. Um, but it can be transmitted in the urine, saliva, tears, a lot of the um, uh, body fluids. uh, Most importantly would be the breast milk which will come up with some of the testing for congenital CMV and it also can cross the placenta so it can be um, maternal to uh, fetal transmission. So and that's also important in terms of congenital CMV. Um, so it's the most common intrauterine infection uh, in humans. Um, about 40,000 kids in the U.S. are born with congenital CMV in the U.S. Um, and congenital CMV is really defined as the detection of the CMV virus um, in, within three weeks of birth. So it has to be um, separated from sort of postnatal, postnatally acquired CMV, and that's why it's important. This three-week window is very important. Um, the problem with diagnosing congenital CMV is um, the symptomatic kids—the so ones that have overt signs of congenital CMV—is a small proportion of, of the, 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 the patients. So only about 10% of kids are symptomatic, um, and that symptomatic is so sort of—you can see the oops—the petechiae, um, the intra, uh, periventricular calcifications uh, in uh, on an uh, MRI scan. Um, and And so, a vast majority of these kids are totally normal, appearing um, asymptomatic, and the only thing um, that is considered asymptomatic, although I think the the terminology is really confusing, is hearing loss so and hearing loss in these kids is is very, very common um, so so now we 're going to do our pretest, um, so I had a I actually had downloaded this audience participation thing, but we're gonna go with old school, raising hands. Um, so um, so what are the proportions of symptomatic and asymptomatic congenital CMV in infected kids? So I just said it, so hopefully. Uh, so 90% symptomatic, anyone for 90% symptomatic? 70%, 50%, 10% symptomatic, excellent, all right. Um, so now these are gonna get a little bit harder. Um, so, of the newborns who have are positive for congenital CMV, what percentage of asymptomatic babies will have hearing loss? So, 10 to 15 percent. Anyone? 40 to 50 percent. 70 to 80 percent. And 90 to 100 percent. Are you talking right.
3: about hearing loss in neonatal period or any hearing? Loss Hear, hearing
2: loss diagnosed in the neonatal period. Yep. Um, Okay, among the hearing-impaired children, um, all comers, um, congenital CMV is the causative agent in what percentage? 20 to 30 percent? Anybody? 40 to 50 percent? 60 to 70s? 80 to 90? Okay, great. (laughs) All right, so percentage of children with congenital CMV-related hearing loss that have delayed onset. So they're not diagnosed at birth, and then they develop it. One to two percent, 10 to 20 percent, 50 to 60 percent, and 80 to 90 percent, okay. Okay, I also gave this one away, but what age must congen- a CMV testing be performed to confirm a diagnosis of congenital CMV? Three days, three weeks? Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, <laughs> So so six months of treatment with Valgan Cyclovir for symptomatic congenital CMV uh, patients has been shown to show no difference in hearing outcomes, (laughs) improvement in hearing outcomes at six months but not sustained, improvement in hearing outcomes at 12 to 24 months but majority having severe neutropenia or improvement in hearing outcomes at 12 to 24 months with about 20% having severe, (laughs) all right. Um, So I just want to kind of go a little bit into what congenital hearing loss is. I think a lot of, uh, you know, um, so hearing loss diagnosed at birth, um, and so the paradigm that we have seen is basically about one in 1,000 kids will have prelingual hearing loss diagnosed. Um, And about 50% of these are genetic and then the other 50% are either non-genetic idiopathic. Um, and that's where the CMB um, folks w- will um, will lie. And then the genetic ones are mostly non-syndromic. Uh, 30% are syndromic. And of those non-syndromic hearing loss, the autosomal recessive are the vast majority. Uh, and if you've heard of the, the dfn B1 or Connexin 26, that is about 50 percent of the autosomal recessive non syndromic hearing loss. Okay, so, and you hear a lot about that, and that's like the genetic testing, that's the one to do. Um, but when you break it up into um, the where CMV falls in, so this breaks it up into where, um, so the congenital CMV will be in the, again, the 50 percent environmental um, as part of that. The DFN. Uh, B1 is really uh, only 50% of this 28%, which is recessive. So it's actually probably, in the overall scheme, it's about maybe about 14, 10 10 to 15% of the overall um, uh, etiologies of hearing loss. I think the most important thing to remember is that, again, congenital CMV can be preventable and it can be treatable. It's probably the only cause of hearing loss, well, one of the only causes of hearing loss that can be really treated if you can diagnose it early. Um, So um, this is a a study done by uh, Albert Park uh, down at uh, Weston, Utah. And basically he's um, looked at uh, over 100 cases of uh, they, so they have newborn hearing screening there. If you fail your newborn hearing screening, you get your CMV um, automatically. To, so this is he was the first state to institute that in their in their policies, mm-hmm. and so they took their co- cohort of patients who had congenital CMV patients, um, congenital CMV test, testing, imaging, and genetics, and then looked at uh, what the etiologies was. And he found in his study that basically CMV. Was about thirty percent of all these patients that that um, had had hearing loss and and had all these. So compared to the genetics, which is about again about ten to fifteen percent. Um, so um, again, the, the CMV is twenty to thirty percent is uh, the etiology is congenital CMV. Another study. So this is a larger systematic review that was done by a group in Belgium. Um, that looked at the, um, the CMV and in the populations, and they basically found that the, um, the rates, again, as we said before, the asymptomatic is about 90%. So 90% of these kids are totally, you know, you don't wouldn't even be able to tell. Um, but these asymptomatic patients, um, they have basically a 10% chance of having hearing loss. Um, and then the ones with symptoms of, uh, of congenital CMV, their hearing loss rate is is 30 over 30 percent. Um, so th- this is you know potentially a, a, an area where we can really kind of make a big difference in terms of, uh, of hearing loss in, in these kids. so so again, are symptomatic, 90% are asymptomatic, really, and and again, 30% of the symptomatic patients will develop central neural hearing loss, at least 30%, I would say, and then 10% of the asymptomatic kids also will develop central neural hearing loss. So, uh, potentially a very big uh, uh, problem that we can um, help. Um, So this study also showed that the congenital CMV can cause hearing loss really across the board. It can be unilateral, it can be bilateral, um, it can be mild, it can be profound. Um, But I think the most important thing here is to look at um, the ones that are actually delayed and um, progressive. So there's a good portion of these that are going to increase, going to get worsening hearing loss, or fluctuating hearing loss, and there's ones that are going to be not identified during the newborn hearing screening because it's at the delayed onset. So up to like 20 percent of these kids will have a delayed onset uh, central, you know, central neural hearing loss, and you're going to miss that in the new uh, universal newborn hearing screening. So just a little bit. So the new universal new, newborn hearing screening, really, the paradigm is to try to get the screening done within the first month of life. Right, and then to confirm that with a diagnostic test from the, our pediatric audiologist within three months, and then an intervention by six months. So that's the kind of the goal of of the um, the universal hear, uh, hearing screening, um, and the early detection, um, and uh, intervention uh, programs. Um, so when you look at the congenital CMV, so if they're failing their universal nu- newborn hearing screening program. And the paradigm for that is, again, to try to get the retesting in three months. That's gonna be too late, right? Too late for this congenital CMV folks um, if you don't get that testing within that three week period. Um, And so, um, and this, you know, kind of points that out. So, you know, you go through the universal screening, great, you know, you don't, you pass, if you refer, the time is ticking, basically, to be able to get this diagnosis, so. In terms of diagnostic, what what can we do? Um, So it's uh, a culture or now more more commonly PCR. Cultures that generally take uh, longer um, and then PCR we can get um, uh, pretty quickly and from the blood saliva or urine, most of the time um, it's getting from the saliva. It's obviously most convenient um, and it's very reliable. So the testing that we have with the PCR is uh, again, 100%, 99% sensitive, sensitive and specific. Um, but, again, this has to be done in three weeks of birth. Um, one complication of this is, again, as I said before, the saliva can, um, can have breast milk in it um, that is from a mother. And if the mother can transmit her uh, CMV um, to and, and give you false positives for the saliva. So usually with the saliva one, you, you do want com- to uh, uh, confirm it with the uh, urine um, as well. Uh, but it's a g- good, quick initial screening. Um, there was a whole lot in terms of, so the kids that you can't get in within the three week period, all, uh, everyone was really excited about using the dry blood spots um, and you can try to use get PCR from that. Um, and there was some good data, but more recently, um, in the most recent study, this was done just earlier this year, was published earlier this year, that the sensitivity and specificity is not great. So 42% sensitivity and 73% specificity. So um, so now, you know, we're looking at different things in terms of we can't sort of rely on these dry blood spots um, to make these um, after three-week kind of diagnosis of congenital CMV. So then, the targeted CMV screening has been really um, go what Albert Park did, and um, this group, um, the CHIMES group, basically um, uh, has has looked at. So they're basically screening um, all the kids with, for congenital CMV who fail their universal hearing uh, uh, hearing tests, um, and so. Um, this CHIME study is uh, you know, a big multi-institutional study. Um, there's seven uh, medical centers that are involved and they've screened uh, over uh, 100,000 newborns. Um, and so they're screened for both congenital CMV as well as hearing impairment. Um, and so this, um, basically this study showed that uh, the, the CMV positive, uh, the patients who were um, CMV positive had a much higher rate of failing their newborn hearing screening or being referred on their newborn hearing screening as opposed to those uh, that were CMV negative. And that was across the board in whether you are in the well-baby nursery or in, in, the, in the NICU. Uh, but you can see in the NICU the, high, the much higher rates uh, because of their additional risk factors for, for hearing loss as well. Um, one important thing also that came out of this study was, yes, you basically can pick up 57% of of uh, the hearing loss, but you're missing 43%. So 43% of these kids with hearing loss pass their newborn hearing screening. So that's quite a quite a few. So those are the ones that are going to be developing their progressive their progressive um, uh, or delayed onset hearing loss. So that you're missing it on that newborn hearing screening. So, again, so about 7% of the CMV-positive patients didn't pass their newborn hearing screening, as opposed to only about 1% of the CMV-negative ones. Um, and then the ones who failed, the CMV-positive ones who failed the newborn hearing screening, um, they, the further diagnostic testing confirmed that 65% of them had newborn hearing, uh, sensorineural hearing loss. Um, and then... Um, the, the, there's a proportion of those CMV-positive infants who passed their newborn hearing screening um, and that, then their hearing loss was confirmed later. Um, uh, so, um, so these targeted CMV screening programs have started uh, popping up around the country. So Utah was the first, and then Iowa and, and Connecticut also have them. Um, and then uh, other states also have sort of just required education of the public and professionals in, in uh, seven additional states. So there, it's growing basically in terms of trying to get this as part of the routine. Um, you fail newborn hearing screening, you know, you get your CMV testing, and we'll pick up more patients. And and the studies by Dr. Park basically show um, that. If they do the uh, the congenital CMV testing, it gets patients in to get into that that paradigm, gets them in bep- between before that 90 days, much earlier than if they hadn't had this congenital CMV screening and a failed newborn hearing t- test. They're they're just the people act on it, which is which is also important. So in terms of treatment. Um, so, ganciclovir has been tried in terms of um, uh, of, of a treatment for these uh, uh, infants with sy- symptomatic congenital CMV, um, and this was part of a collaborative antiviral uh, study group. Again, um, and um, they, what they basically did was randomized uh, ganciclovir and placebo to these children who are with uh, congenital CMV. Who, symptomatic in general CMV. So he had other other features of, of, of CMV. Um, and they did show, and they looked at their hearing um, and they showed improvement or stabilization in hearing in, in, in about 84% of the patients that had gancyclovir, the patients that had placebo about 59%. So that was a significant improvement, a difference. Um, there was no hearing deterioration in the gancycophia group, as opposed to 41% of the, the control group had, um, or the placebo group had uh, deterioration. Um, but the problem was is that um, about six, 63% of these kids um, with the treatment had uh, severe neutropenia. So it was limiting in terms of, and the, no, no one wanted to kind of treat the asymptomatic kids um, with this. The same group did a study um, using val valgancyclovir, which is an oral analog of gancyclovir, and their results are uh, promising as well. So, in um, they did a six-week versus a six-month study, uh, and um, it showed that the six months of uh, therapy were um, those kids had more likely to have stable or improved hearing and all their neurodevelopmental kind of outcomes as well, at 12 months and out to 24 months, um, which, which is all. Um, and their rates of severe neutropenia was uh, uh, comparable to the control group of the GAN study, which was about 20%, 19 to 20%. Um, so this is the, the clinical study that we are, we're trying to um, gain participation in. And so this is done by, by Albert Park, um, and really looking to see whether or not we can treat asymptomatic, so essentially the kids with uh, uh, hearing loss um, with, uh, with uh, Valga um, and Cyclovir. Um, and I guess the humps in this road, as we've been trying to get this on, get our site online, is basically kind of getting this, the, the CMV testing within that three week period. Um, before we can, can be randomized whether or not we get um, the valves and gancyclovir. So um, that's something that if there's anyone out there, uh, we'd love to kind of get your input in terms of how best we can kind of get that done. Um, there are groups that do it <clears throat> from the, at the well, you know, the, 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 right when they're born. So they fail the newborn hearing screening. Whoever's doing the newborn hearing screening, <clears throat> if they fail, then they swab the, swab the cheek, get some saliva. Uh, and that's how a lot of groups do it. Um, other groups have been doing it <clears throat> where they have been able to get their <clears throat> excuse me their the, the kids into the audiologists uh, within that three weeks. So if they fail, they get into the the pediatric audiologists um, and then they do the confirmatory uh, uh, hearing examination. And then if that confirms, then the audiologists do the the swab and be able to get that on the road. So. I don't know how best we can do that, that here. I think our, we do have limitations in terms of access to getting into our audiologist, but you know within that three-week period, and so I think what we have to hit is trying to get it when they get that. You know, if they're getting the newborn hearing screening, which we we are universally getting. I mean, we have a, like a ninety-seven percent kind of I think testing rate here, um, and, but. You know, we really need uh, the involvement of anyone involved with the well baby nurseries um, or the ICNs and things like that to be able to really catch these um, to get the swabs. Um, so, in terms of management, um, the uh, testing uh, for uh, hearing testing for all patients with congenital CMV uh, really needs to be, you know, a, a routine. Um, but uh, the guidelines are not, I think people do it a little bit differently here and there. But so if there is already hearing loss identified, then we really need to re- be on top of things. So they're getting repeat hearing tests every three months until the hearing is stable. And then usually like annually until they're about six years. They sort of feel like that six years is st- when a bulk of the hearing loss will be identified by. Um, if hearing loss isn't present, then testing every six months um, is, is okay. Um, but... Um, and then obviously you want to do that, you know, hearing aid if they have significant hearing loss, uh, cochlear implantation if they're severe to profound hearing loss. And the kids with uh, congenital CMV-related hearing loss do really well with cochlear implants in general. Um, and then uh, speech therapy is also very important. You know, you should just basically have to get them into uh, intervention programs for their, for their hearing loss. So in terms of prevention, you know, there's a lot. There's many people that are trying to develop the CMV uh, vaccines, um, but that has been problematic. Uh, There's different strains, and you know, even when um, when someone gets CMV, they can get another strain of CMV and uh, and get infected. Um, Passive immunization uh, with the CMV hyperimmune globulin has been tried, um, and that hasn't been very successful um, so far in studies. So I think people are going back to kind of just incre- really increasing their awareness of congenital CMV infections, especially in the um, in the OB kind of uh, realm. You know, limiting your your, your exposures essentially, um, and so behavioural measures, frequent hand washing, uh, especially with uh, if anyone exposed to young children. Um, so you know, this is a. Uh, a paradigm in terms of uh, diagnosis of hearing loss uh, or etiology of hearing loss that Dr. Saunders and I put out you know, three four years ago now, um, and we one good thing is that we did include CMV in it. Um, it's right here, um, but obviously it's kind of uh, pretty complicated. Um, so now you know this new diagnostic paradigm again put out by Alba Park simplifies it somewhat. So basically, on the initial identification of uh, of hearing loss um, through newborn hearing screening, if there's, you know, features, so the syndromic kids oftentimes you can kind of tell, or if there's sort of history that kind of tells you, will point you to why they might have hearing loss, then, you know, you kind of, you you can figure it out through there. If you don't really know from there, then what he really advocates is basically getting your saliva or your PCR right then and there. So it should be done very quickly, and that's what they do in Utah. It's basically if they fail, um, you know, everyone's getting it. So um, if it's positive, then you basically know. And if it's taken, uh, you know, before three weeks of age, then you're 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 good to go and treat. Um, and then, but if it's still like you get it after three weeks, you know, then he advocates trying to use the uh, the dry blood spot uh, PCR. Um, and then, if you need any other sort of imaging, potentially looking at the um, intracranial kind of uh, calcifications, you can use use that. Um, so, the I think this can be simplified even more. And Dr. Um, uh, Greenwald in Cincinnati, I think this is probably the management kind of thing that most people are are going towards now. Instead of doing all the testing, I think before you know you'd send them out for. Um, Complete blood count, glucose. You, you you know check their their renal function. You know you sort of a, a real kind of just throw everything, um, testing for their etiology of hearing loss. But if you really can't find what the etiology or you, on on just sort of history and physical, then boom, go to the CMV testing. And that's what most people are trying to do now. Um, and then and then that's. With genetic testing, the next generation sequencing and imaging; those are the next two kind of things. And then you, you, you kind of do that. If that is um, negative, then you basically kind of go go do the sequencing um, and, and imaging, which will tell you things. But all these other lab tests that we used to get um, pretty much are are not very useful. They generally very not. Yeah, you, know, you know, you didn't get a very good hit rate. Um, so, let's see, let's try, try this again. I think um, everyone knows this one, um, hopefully. So, um, so D, right, so it's 10%, only 10% are symptomatic, and 90% are asymptomatic, and you'll never know unless you test. Okay, so that's the, the, the big take home point from there. Okay, of the newborn hearing, uh, newborn with uh, congenital CMV who are asymptomatic, who, how much will have hearing loss? A, B, <laughs> C, <laughs> D. So uh, again, so the asymptomatic baby is about 10 to 15% um, that will develop uh, hearing loss. Um, <clears throat> so in, the, in, in hearing impaired children's congenital CMV, and this is probably, I, I think if you, um, I think in the, in the one paper it shows one thing, I think it, this is going up. So essentially, um, it's 20 to 30 percent as, as um, that will have e- congenital CMV. As and this is all takers, all takers in terms of, of all kids that are, you know, failing their newborn hearing screenings, having hearing impairment. It's up to like 20, 30 percent. That's a big chunk uh, of, of um, patients. And then the percentage of children with congenital CMV who have delayed onset. Again. 10 to 20 percent. So it's quite a few, and the, these are the ones that we're missing on the you know the newborn hearing screening, and that's a it's a, a, a big um, percentage. Um, everyone knows so three weeks. So we, this is really important in terms of just get, getting them in, getting that testing done um, uh, before you know they're they're older than three weeks. Otherwise, you we can't say for sure that it's congenital CMV. And then treatment is, is working. So, like, in these patients that are getting the um, valganciclovir, their hearing has improved, and it is seeming like it's sustained, and it's uh, limited in terms of the severe l- l- neutropenia. So, key points, uh, again, congenital CMV is really important. It's the most common di- uh, cause of g- non-genetic congenital hearing loss. It's the only one that really can be kind of really treated uh, and prevented. Uh, early detection is really important. Um, and so, you know, trying to get this, this diagnosis within the three weeks of life is very important to confirm the diagnosis. Um, In these groups that are doing the targeted screening, I I think it has improved things. It gives you early diagnosis and treatment um, as well as education. Um, But in that one study, we're still missing like over 40% of these kids on newborn hearing screening. And then Valganciclovir, hopefully will start being, you know, with this study, um, can see whether or not what the side effects are and then whether or not the improvements also um, kind of uh, uh, are, are in these asymptomatic or hearing loss kids uh, with congenital CMV, um, but we have to we we still have to uh, wait and see for that. So these are the opportunities and challenges. So again, so universal screening. You know, we do universal screening for a lot of these metabolic diseases on the dry blood spot. You know, I think if you looked at the numbers, I I think hearing loss related to uh, the uh, congenital CMV is probably a lot more uh, prevalent than than a lot of these metabolic screenings. So why not include that in in the universal, you know, um, screening uh, uh, for newborn screening. Um, The identification of these ones that are delayed, um, I think is really important, like how how we can make sure that we catch these kids. Um, so even though they don't, ha- they pass their newborn hearing screening. Um, if they're having any difficulties, you just have to have have a high index of su- suspicion if you see these kids to get them in for their hearing tests. Um, and then the treatment for these asymptomatic kids, asymptomatic meaning you know kids with a hearing loss, um, you know wh- whether or not that that's, that's going to be um, effective um, and the side effect pro- profile will be low enough that that uh, these kids will we offered it. Um, and then, what do you do when you identify it? Also, after so, these the the treatment with valacyclovir is usually you know within sort of the six month of their of, of life. So, if you you're identifying someone really late, say three years of age, you know what can you do? And so, what are those treatment options for those kids? Um, <laughs> and so, a lot of uh, again opportunities I think for research and for um, for collaborative. Uh, um, studies um, are are um, ripe. So all right, so any questions? And we'd love to kind of open things up for a discussion in terms of how we at, you know at at Dartmouth could potentially try to get these kids targeted and then potentially, you know, to our audiologists treated, et cetera, et cetera. So go ahead. Dr. Wayland.
4: of the newborn Nursery, and yeah has been a key person missing in an online communication that we've had over the last month or two with Dr. Paul Plumbo from the Infectious Disease, James yeah. Saunders from ENT, Laura Greer, former resident at APD, I a Hospital, you know, if she's here. Steve Bringer, our section chief of neonatology, and Jim Gray, our intensive care nursery medical director, having a conversation about this um, with the challenges that you've mentioned. Our hearing, Mm -hmm. so we do universal hearing screening. We often have false positives, but that delayed, you know, diagnosis in terms of getting them into audiology in a timely manner is, is a bit challenging. So we've had the conversation about. During um, CMV, we've traditionally done urine CMV. Right? Mm-hmm. There's challenges for getting the bag on the baby. Our hearing screen is often done at 24 hours or later to decrease the risk of false positives. And then we have early discharges and those kinds of things. So the saliva CMV is is very appealing for us. and. Right now, we don't do PCR here. It's a send-out, so we've had discussions. Ella Martin from um, the Director of Microbiology is very interested in looking at potentially validating this here. and I'll let Dr. Colombo talk about it. We actually are hoping to have a meeting in the next week or two, so we definitely need
2: you at the table for that. Yeah, th- this was one of the things. Dr. Saunders is right behind you there. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, part of part of the reason why we we kind of chose to do uh, do this talk was because I was hoping to get, again, these key players in here to be able to try to um, discuss it. So, I think we've been trying to set up a meeting for, I don't know, for a couple of months now. And so, this was... This was my secret venue um, to be able to try to get this discussion going and, and maybe um, get, you know, again, become one of these sites. And, and these are all things exactly that that um, we, we want to try to kind of work out, like from the testing. And then, you know, if we do get someone on this, who's going to be doing the monitoring for, you know, if we get someone on the val- or things like that, as part of the study. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, we'd love to. Discuss it now or, or later. <laughs> and then just
4: one other comment. We also have a really rich um, network of, uh, through our CHAD peri outreach education, with and again, being the nurse coordinator for that, for all of our um, hospitals in New Hampshire. So, you know, there is, if you wanted to have access or really incorporate this into care elsewhere, state, else I think that
2: Yeah.
5: Tyler yeah. was first um, so Tyler Hartman, I do the, the high-risk follow-up clinic for the NICU um, I think you <laughs> really highlighted the, the bottleneck <laughs> in pediatric audiology with all of the false positives from the from the normal kids going to um, pediatric audiology for diagnostic ABRs after they failed their newborn hearing screen um, the problem is also in the very the ELBWs of our 2014 cohort, only 12.6% of our kids got diagnostic AVRs. Um, so there are a lot of kids that need this particular testing. Um, and th- there seems to be a bottleneck there. And one of my fears is uh, there's going to be a lot of CMB positive kids that are asymptomatic. And then we're trying, if we have a quality improvement project trying to improve the diagnostic AVRs of our ELBWs. This is all going to make the bottleneck worse. So I think that one of the main problems we need to address is the is this amount of support in terms of pediatric audiology that we have?
2: Well, we have a group of pediatric audiologists right there. Uh, and, and we've talked about that. I mean, when we started talking about and even entering, you know, trying to be a site for the study, it was just like, w- when do we even see these kids? I mean, like, we usually are seeing them, you know, months, you know, to get them in a three-week, we were like, Ooh. you know, I, I I didn't think that we would be able to kind of do that. And I, I kind of... I hesitated in terms of, but Dr. Saunders you know, we, we kind of went through, and, and I think there is a opportunity here. Um, obviously, there's, you know, there's, our I think our wait time is probably I don't know three months, right, to get into pediatric audiology. It's
1: not as bad as it was. Um, I think it's one or two at this
2: point. So one to two but still longer than the three weeks, you know? But
1: it's a bigger scope issue because, um, so I'm Cindy Nolton, I'm the coordinator for the pediatric audiology programs here, and um, one of the bigger issues is how many other sites in New Hampshire are uh, diagnostic AVR, uh threshold testing sites? And um, one of the largest sites closed a year ago, December, in southern New Hampshire, in Ashwa. So we've been seeing a number of kids Coming up from the southern region of the state, Um, and that was for a while there a bit of a bottleneck for us. Um, Also, the other piece of this, you mentioned um, getting intervention. So for us, that's often talking about hearing aids and getting into early supports and services. We're one of the few sites in the state that take Medicaid. So you know, all these kids who are being diagnosed with hearing loss, even at other centers. Are being referred to us for uh, fitting of hearing aids and for that three-month ongoing monitoring in the first year of life, and um, these are longer appointments which take um, more time and, and cause some of these bottlenecks. Was
3: Was Nashua the only other site? Or how uh, many
1: sites? Um, it was the only other site I think that was taking Medicaid for hearing aids. Nothing in
0: Manchester.
1: Not
6: that I'm aware of. So when we talk about all these kids with um, congenital CMB being asymptomatic, but then you realize some of them are having hearing loss, so they're not truly asymptomatic. Yeah. I'm wondering if, has anyone, <laughs> and you may not know the answer, but has anyone done testing to find out if these kids are cognitively impaired, but that it's not obvious or devastating, so that if you're positing a universal screening for uh, congenital CMB exposure, you may have other outcomes Look at. You can push for this, right, because the screening test has to be, uh, it has to be sensitive, which this is, and you have to have some intervention, which we would, and it has to be sort of cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to screen everybody that's born saliva-wise, obviously it's non-invasive, but I don't know how much that PCR costs. I'm guessing it's not cheap. But are you going to have so many kids that have exposure that really don't have, that truly, truly are asymptomatic, you may be causing more trouble than it's worth. But I'm that, wondering if, because th- there was that mention in that one study where it was, you know you're, you're focusing obviously on hearing loss, but they also said that there's some cognitive effects benefits at the 12 to 24 months as well. So I'm wondering if there is actually cognitive impairment that we're calling asymptomatic.
2: Well, so that's that's you know part of the study in terms of the the um, the, the group that we're trying to join is really kind of looking at because I think these asymptomatic kids are, are um, there is a, a wide variety in terms of their sort of hearing loss and cognitive uh, function as well. and I, and I think we're, they're, they're getting lost essentially um, and so, um, I think the argument against uh, sort of the universal has always been that, you know, it's just like how much you, you're, you know, when you r- break it down, if like, if it really is only like 0.5 in a thousand that you're actually getting congenital CMV, and then the hearing loss is really an, another small set of that, like it, the numbers kind of dwindle down and down. But I, I, I think it's just that it, that it is, you know, the hearing loss is really kind of a, a, a major sort of congenital CMV um, issue. Um, and I think it's, it's probably underestimated in, in a lot of these studies.
6: And the, the prenatal testing includes CMB, right? So for, yeah. no. Oh, no, only if no. there's um,
2: signs. <laughs> oh, I
6: meant for moms. Moms don't get like CMB mm-hmm. screening.
2: So,
7: as we think about whether we should be pushing for universal screening after the failed newborn test or pushing to sort of get kids into audiology a little more quickly, I think it's important for us to understand how good our newborn hearing screen is. And I feel like I've, and this question is sort of for anybody who knows about this, in the past I've heard that the specificity of newborn hearing screen is actually pretty good and we shouldn't really be seeing that many false positives. But I wonder about that, because everybody sort of said we see a lot of false positives. And anecdotally, I feel like we see more false positives than we are supposed to, based on the numbers that are quoted.
3: The, the data that you showed uh, suggests there's a 35% rate of false positive newborn screenings, that you know, lo, all those kids go on to uh, have to testing, and 35% were normal.
1: So it suggests is that
7: Sorry, I missed the beginning. Is that local, or is that national data?
2: That's national. Yeah. But part
1: of that, I think, Sam, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Chen, is that it depends on what type of newborn screening you were doing, because when Dr. Chen and I were in the Seattle area, most of the Seattle groups were using OAE and not ABR as our screening, and Bonnie, my understanding
4: when I moved here was that we use ABR, which has higher specificity um, than
3: the OAE. So do OAE. we know how many of those that then go on to uh, more afraid. formal testing uh, prove to be, in fact, hearing the deficit? That's sort of we
7: were, we know our local information about
2: our false positive Yeah, rates. Yeah, yeah, we were just kind of going through this. I don't, Cindy, I don't know if you, so like in in our institution, we looked at, it was about 1,100 that were screened, and about 3% were referred, is that right? I have the number sorry. And then those actually that were confirmed, I, I guess we didn't, we didn't finish that conversation yesterday. Part of my interest in this, too, is just like there's a lot of residents here, and this is good
7: information for us to know as we're doing that screen in the newer nursery. And I think I've always been a little bit unclear on how good the screening actually is and how to counsel families appropriately when they have a failed screen. And I think we tend to just say, go see audiology. But that leaves lots of families with a lot of anxiety. So we ought to be able to sort of tell them what what position that puts them in, I think. Dr.
8: Saunders, is your hand up? I just... I wanted to just make a couple of comments uh, on Jim Saunders, by the way, and, and this has been included in this discussion, and, and hopefully will be there for that uh, conversation in a, in a couple of weeks. I uh, just want to make a couple of points. One is about your, your uh, the point that you made about with, with regards to universal screening, you know, we, we the, the tests that are done on the dry blood spot, which have sort of been grandfathered in because these tests have been done for, years, for metabolic disease have been done for years and years and years, uh, but if you look at the prevalence of those diseases compared with just the portion of hearing loss that's related to CMV, the, the, there are orders of magnitude more prevalent, the, the hearing loss is orders of magnitude more prevalent than any of those diseases that we routinely test for. Now, I, I think, quite frankly, I think universal CMV screening is a, is a you know problem, maybe where we're headed, but it, I don't think it's where, we're, where we should be focusing right now. But I do think that testing <laughs> every child that has that initial screen uh, failure so that initial screen failure every one of those kids should get that initial CMV and I think that you, that the point that was made about the you know the, the sort of hidden cognitive de- defects I mean these are these are kids that, that may or may not pass their hearing screening now but I think knowing that that child's been exposed to congenital CMV is very useful information going forward as you're following that child along. And I, so, I think if you were to look at the cost effectiveness, granted, there will be certainly will be false positives. I think 35% is a pretty good rate. Right? If we could do 35% false positive, I think we'd be doing a pretty good job of our screening. Uh, but I think even if you look at the cost effectiveness uh, of, of all of that, it, it's, it would be cost effective to go ahead and screen all of those kids that fail the hearing testing at minimum. To go ahead and get the CMV testing because otherwise, as, as Eunice mentioned, the, the, the time, the clock is ticking. Because by the time we recognize a few months down the road that we need that <laughs> test, we really don't have another good way to get that data. And this is one of the few things where you know, your sort of opportunity expires of getting the diagnostic data that you really need for those kids. So <laughs> I just try to make that case very strongly that we really need to be screening all of those kids. And we also need to be doing as good a job as we possibly can to get them in soon and try to reduce that false positive rate. Thirty-five percent is not that bad, considering
3: the, the, the implications. That's right. Uh, so, um uh, maybe a, I'd be interested in a description of the study that or that you're potentially joining. Is it a? Placebo control trial. How long is the valgancyclovir being given?
2: So, what kind of
3: collaboration do you need from the yeah. infectious disease? Good,
2: good questions. But um, so yeah, so the valgancyclovir is placebo um, with a syrup, um, and it's I think it's six milligrams per kilogram bid for six months, um, and so and then the uh, the other one just just gets the syrup, um, and then. I think that, the, I, I don't know in terms of, again, what the follow-up is supposed to be. So when you get these kids on this trial that's you know, being run by this, the, the, the Dr. Park in Utah, is who's doing that, that follow-up um, during, during the time that the patients are on, on the trial um, and making sure that they're not getting se- severe neutropenia and all the other side effects that are potential there. So there's a lot that I think we still need to kind of work out with, uh, with the, the study group.
1: You sure. know, um, that was a great talk. Thank you very much. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that subpopulation of kids with delayed or progressive hearing loss? As a primary care doc, that just terrifies me. And as you know, I mean, I've been practicing long enough before universal newborn hearing screening, the average age of diagnosis for um, profound neurosensory
2: hearing loss was two yeah. prior to universal newborn hearing screening. So, <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about these kids. So the, the, I think this is a sort of a growing population. So there was another study, again, by I think it was Dr. Park's group, and they basically showed that, you know, up to probably, you know, even the kids that they went out and followed these kids out to 18, and yeah, maybe about 10 or 15 percent who will um, have asymptomatic congenital CMV much larger percentage will end up having some hearing loss after, if you go out to 18 years of age. So I think, I think just go to the point is, is that we just need to get that diagnosis of congenital CMV and then we can follow these patients more closely. I think they all have to be followed closely. And I, I don't think it's just the, the you know, uh, the ones that have, you know, any, any signs or symptoms. I mean, we really, I think all congenital CMV kids should be followed with hearing tests um, pretty much yearly throughout up to eight, you know, 18, really, because they showed that there. I think it was like 20, 30% ended up getting <clears throat> additional hearing loss. And if you really look at the populations, it's just like it. it, it you know, it, it, you can't tell when they're going to get it, and so, and they they're all, oftentimes you know it's we're missing it. You know, they're, they're having trouble, but it's like oh, could it be something else? And if we don't know from the beginning that it was congenital CMV, I think our whole, you know, our whole treatment, and I think we just need to know that from up front. So, Peter.
6: So I'm a little worried about equipoise. I, didn't, I thought you were gonna look at outcomes from treatment, but how, I feel like there's a couple of studies out there that are, that are from what I can see. These from-
2: are asymptomatic. So this study is only asymptomatic. I know, but
6: if I, if I have a kid that it fails in ABR and then is positive for CMD. How am I gonna say, I feel like it would be hard for me to, to randomize them knowing that I have a 50% chance of not getting the treatment, that, sh- that there's some good evidence will be effective. So I'm wondering how you can randomize if, if we have some evidence that this is effective in kids that have already been identified as hearing
2: loss on their AVR and positive for CMD. Well, the, the, the kids in those studies are basically on, only the ones that had like all the n- neurological outcomes, the petechiae, the intracranial stuff. So those are the symptomatic kids. Those are the kids. And that, the question is whether or not the risk-benefit profile on asymptomatic kids is worthwhile to be able to put these kids, knowing that they have a, you know 20% of severe neutropenia and all these other things. To, and, yeah, and so I, I think that's, that's the impetus for the study, it's a, the isolating these asymptomatic Asymptomatic. I think the terminology is terrible, but um, these hearing loss kids that have, you know, just hearing loss as the as their manifestation of congenital CMV. How do you get 20% severe neutropenia
1: with Prasimbu?
2: <laughs> yeah, how do they define severe neutropenia? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to re- relook at that study. <laughs>
5: There's a lot of kids out there with an ANC less than 1,000. So, it's so severe
3: 50, severe in the studies was defined as less than 500, so it's yeah. clearly severe. Um, and it's not in the placebo group, it's in the treated group that yeah. is experiencing. Um, no, no in the placebo group there was 19%. No, that's not true. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll look at the
2: that. study again. Yeah. <clears throat>
3: Uh, if I could just comment on the study that you're uh, contemplating entering, um, the network that we're now involved with, uh, National Network, looked at that study and there were some real concerns about it. Number one, it's not enrolling very well at all. For the reasons you might imagine, they're targeting enrollment and consideration of enrollment from four months of age to four years. So it's after the point, if this is the same study.
2: No, that's a different, this is a different study. It's, it's up to uh, five, I think it's five months in this study. From birth to five months? Yeah, okay. birth to five months. There's another
3: study that's trying to get in. I think
2: that's an Alabama study, maybe? I think it's from four months to
3: four years. Okay. We just looked at this study. So first of all, you wonder if they're gonna get any useful information out of the study at the end of the day. Comparing a, a child who's four years old with congenital C and versus one with four months. And then all the sites are having the problem that you just elucidated. That is, how do you make the diagnosis of congenital CMV in a kid who's already out of the three-month period. Yeah. And one of the ways to do that is to go back to the Guthrie cards. And those are very hard to access mm-hmm. for most of the sites. So that, that study is really having some problems. And it's uncertain whether it's going to get to the end point that they want. And that's what we need. Uh, the conundrum for clinicians and for the <coughs> guidelines group is what to do about these truly asymptomatic kids. Should we be treating them when we make a diagnosis of congenital CB? Yeah. Balancing that against a 20% rate of neutropenia, which is self-limited and will go away when you stop the drug, but you've got to monitor those kids. So the guidelines right now are not saying go and treat all of these kids, but there is a movement of translating the data from the highly symptomatic kids, yeah. where, where there's some benefit uh, demonstrated, to this very asymptomatic group.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, some of them may have subtle neurologic, uh, neurodevelopmental issues, uh, which we aren't appreciating. So there's real temptation to treat, but we don't have the evidence base to support
1: that.
2: Yeah.
3: It's uncertain whether that evidence base is gonna materialize. So, Thank you.
2: Thank you. No, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine she'd welcome anyone who's interested in this study to come down and indicate So, Thank
5: you.